And good morning, everybody. Can I get a good morning back from you today? Yeah, it's a good, good day to be in church. If we haven't met before, my name is Tyler. I get to be the pastor here at this church we call Anastasis. Our name means resurrection, to be raised to new life, to be raised to new life in Christ. And that's what we believe, that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter the mistakes you've made, if you call on the name of Jesus, that you'll be saved, you'll be forgiven, you'll be restored and raised to new life in Christ. And if this is your first time with us this weekend, I just want to say welcome. I'm really, really glad that you're here today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking about an hour out of your weekend to spend it here with us. I say it almost every weekend, and I mean it every single time I say it. There's no place I'd rather be on a Sunday than right here worshiping with each and every one of you guys. And I woke up this morning, looked out my window, and it was snowing like sideways. And I was like, I didn't know that that was supposed to happen today. And I took a video, actually, when I pulled in the parking lot here. I was here about 30 minutes before we were supposed to load in. And it was just really coming down, big flakes. And I sent it to my friends in Oklahoma because they don't have this weather going on right now. In fact, they don't really ever get this weather. And I was like, you would not believe what almost April in Ohio looks like this morning. Oh, the joys of portable church. Here we go. We're going to get ready to do it in these kind of elements. But I mean it with all my heart. There's no place I'd rather be, and I think it's how we set our perspective, right? We can look at it and say, it's cold outside. I'd rather just sleep in my bed. I'd rather just stay at home, make a soup or a stew. I'll catch the podcast tomorrow, whatever the case may be. Or we can say, hey, it's a good day. I'm going to wake up no matter what the elements are on the outside. It's a good day. I'm going to get to church. I'm going to worship with my family. So I'm really thankful that you all are here today. And uh, speaking of perspective, Um, I took our family, we went shopping last night, we had to pick up some supplies for the church, and if you don't know, we do basically all of our shopping for the church at Sam's Club, because you can buy everything in bulk, right? I don't have to go to Walmart and take like nine of the things in the row, I can just grab one of the big items at Sam's Club, and so I was walking around Sam's with my son, and my daughter's like, I gotta go potty, so Hannah runs her into the restroom, and I've got a picture to show you. Uh, We're we're standing there, and he's just kind of laid backwards, Staring straight up at the sky. If you can't tell, there's actually a hot dog in his hand. Um, Listen, when you go to Sam's Club, they're a dollar. Like, you just have to get one. Hot dog and a pretzel. That was dinner last night. Super nutritious. Dinners of champions. And um, he's laid back, staring at the ceiling. And it had me thinking, he and I are in the same store. We're in the same spot in the same store. Yet our perspective of that store is drastically different. Because he's staring straight up at the lights. And I'm looking around at everything else that's going on. And so I just wonder if I was able to get inside the mind of my two-year-old and ask him, what does Sam's Club look like? What he would articulate to me. I imagine he'd be like, they got a lot of lights. (laughs) They have a ton of lights. But the truth is, in our life, we can be in the same spot as somebody else, going through the same moment as somebody else, walking through the same thing as somebody else, and have a completely different perspective based on where our eyes are fixed, based on where our attention is is drawn. And so we're going to continue in our conversation this week and week four of Why Not Here as we continue to challenge our perspective, continue to challenge where our eyes are fixed. And so to do so, we're going to look at a story that comes to us out of Luke chapter seven. But before we jump in, let's go ahead and let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for who you are. God, you're so good. You're so faithful. You never leave us or forsake us. God, I thank you for being just amazing for being present, God, for using every situation in our life for our good. God, I thank you that you want us to know you, that you created us with a plan and a purpose for our life to know you. 
And Father, I pray that right now in this time that we share together, Lord, that our eyes would just be fixed on you. Our hearts would be fixed on you. Whatever we've come in with this week, whatever we're holding on to, good or bad, in between, God, I pray that we'd lay it at your feet. And Lord, that our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears would be open to you. Father, I pray that everything we do would be for your glory today. God, I pray over every word I'm about to speak. Father, let it be the ones that you want spoken. Lord, the words you don't want spoken, omit those from my vocabulary today. God, I pray that this message would be only the message that you want heard. And Lord, again, I pray that everything we do would bring you honor and glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So like I said, we are in week four of our message series, Why Not Here? We're talking about why do we believe God wants to do something special here in Lima? Why do we believe God wants to do something special even in and through our church? In the first week, we talked about the Samaritan woman at the well. If you don't know the story, Jews and Samaritans do not like each other. So what does Jesus decide to do on his journey? He says, hey, we got to go through Samaria. He takes his disciples into the heart of Samaria. They want to get out of there as fast as they possibly can. Jesus is like, y'all go grab lunch, but I'm going to sit down here next to the well. And in walks a woman, middle of the day, to draw water. Because this woman's an outcast who's been defined by her mistakes, who's been defined by her sins. And Jesus makes it a point and a priority to talk to her to connect with her, to speak life into her, to tell her, hey, the Father's actually seeking people like you who have faith to come and worship him, that no matter who you are or the mistakes you've made, he's seeking you to come and worship him. And so we talked about why not here? Why not in Lima? Why not in a community where 80% of the people don't know Jesus? Why wouldn't God do something absolutely spectacular here? We believe that he will. In week two, we talked about Jairus's daughter being healed, being raised from her illness, being raised from the dead. We talked about the woman who had the discharge of blood for 12 years, finally being free from that disease, finding healing because she bursts through the crowd, grabs a hold of Jesus's garment. She presses with purpose, believing in faith that Jesus is who he says that he is. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, finally on the other side of healing her, to go take care of the reason he set out, which was to heal Jairus's daughter. He shows up and the scene is chaotic. It's wild as they're mourning what they believe is the loss of this 12-year-old little girl. Jesus shows up and he says, why are you all freaking out? The child is not dead. She's just sleeping. They mock him. He goes in grabs her by the hand and says, little girl, I say to you, arise. She gets up and begins to walk and pandemonium takes place. They celebrate what they've just seen and what has just happened in their life because the truth is that nothing is dead until God says that it's dead. He has the ability to define what life and death look like. He has power over death, hell and the grave. And so this little girl that both our natural eyes, we would have thought she was dead. Jesus says, no, no, no. She's just sleeping here. Let me take her by the hand and help her walk. And we believe with all of our hearts that in our community and in our church, that's what God wants to do. There's spots in our lives. There's spots in our community that we've defined as dead. With our natural eyes, we've seen them as dead. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 they're just sleeping. I want to come along and say to them, arise, let me help you walk. And last week, we talked about Lazarus's resurrection and how Jesus said to Martha at the tomb, he said, hey, roll back the stone. And she's like, but there's an awful smell in there. He's been dead for four days. And he's like, I didn't ask you about the smell. I asked you about the stone. And we talked about how for each and every one of us, We can fix our eyes on the smell or on the stone. And when God asks us to remove something in our life, 
Where's our attention go? Where does our focus go? Because the reality is the smell does not get in the way of God performing the miracle, but the stone has to be rolled back for us to see the work that God is doing. And so today we're going to look at another story where a woman has a ridiculous amount of boldness in her worship of Jesus and nothing's going to stop her pursuit of honoring him. And like I said, this story comes to us out of Luke chapter seven. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. If you've got a Bible app with you, if not, the, uh, the scriptures will be on the screen behind me. But at this point in his ministry, Jesus is a big deal. Like he's a really, really big deal. This is in the front part of his ministry, but he's gained a ton of notoriety at this point. The masses are beginning to follow him. And there's basically two groups of people in society. There's the Pharisees, the political and religious leaders, and then there's like everybody else. And so everybody really likes Jesus, like all of the normal folks, you and I, they really like Jesus. But the Pharisees are getting a little concerned about who Jesus is and what he's doing because they're noticing that their control and their power over the people is beginning to wane. It's beginning to slip. They might not have as much power as they want. And so that's where our story picks up today. Verse 36, chapter 7, it says this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he, meaning Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So let's stop there really quick. Let me set the scene for you. You're going to find out in a moment that this, Pharisee's, this Pharisee man, his name is Simon. And like most Pharisees, he doesn't like Jesus. He doesn't treat him with honor. He doesn't treat him with respect. So why does he invite Jesus into his home? If you don't like somebody, like why do you invite him over to your house? Um, potentially he's doing this to build his reputation with the people. See, Jesus, like I said, is popular with the people, not so popular with the Pharisees. But if he can invite Jesus in, the people see him with Jesus, it might build his clout or his credibility with the people, helping him continue to retain some of the power that he believes that he's losing. So in essence, he's potentially just using Jesus and his popularity for his own gain. He doesn't want to eat with Jesus because he's interested. He wants to eat with Jesus because he likes being near to Jesus and what Jesus, being near to Jesus can do for him. And as I thought about that this week, I actually thought about how some of us approach our faith that way, how some of us approach our walk with God that way. We love the benefits that we hear about that come with God. We love the idea that we can be near God or we can be around what Jesus is doing. And we love the idea of being around the benefit of what's happening. But as long as it doesn't cost me too much, as long as it doesn't affect my life too much, as long as the relationship with God doesn't affect the relationships in my life, when in reality, if we follow Jesus, we don't get to do it like that. That's not the way we get to do it. It's not just like being around Jesus. The truth is the call of following Jesus is not a call to come and be around, but it's a call to come and die with him, to be near him to know him, to lay ourselves down and to say, hey, Jesus, I want to fix my eyes on you and you alone. I want you to eradicate what is in me that is not of you. So if comfort is on your mind and you are looking for comfort, that's not exactly part of the deal with following Jesus. So he's sitting there in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Luke writes this, verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So, 
They're sitting in the Pharisee's house and suddenly this scene gets a little bit wild, right? This scene would have been a little bit uncomfortable maybe for those in attendance. The scene now has changed dramatically. We have a room full of people where people are on opposite ends of the spectrum. We have the Pharisee on one end and we have this woman who's defined as a sinner on the other end. Let's talk about the Pharisees. What do we know about them? One, they love the law. They love the law. They think it's the best thing ever. So much so, they wear the tassels around their waist to show you all the sins they don't have, to show you all the rules they keep perfectly. They love the law, and they always want to prove, hey, look how perfect I am. But this woman is a sinner. And the truth is, we all are, even the Pharisees. Every single one of us is a sinner. But this is how Luke identifies her. Her identity is sinner. And in that culture, that would have meant one thing, sexually immoral. If they're going to call a woman a sinner, she's sexually immoral and likely a prostitute in her life. And so Jesus is having dinner at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And if Simon's identity is perfect, then her identity is sinner. And in walks this prostitute and she begins to anoint him with the ointment and worship him by washing his feet with her hair and her tears. And now this ointment or this perfume would have been incredibly costly. This would have been, excuse me, no small venture. This would have been no small deal. It would have been ridiculously expensive. So she walks in the room and you have to imagine whatever conversation is happening in this room just has to stop. Silence, And I don't know if you've ever been a part of a situation like this. I told you all, I think a little while ago, Hannah and I were on our way back from a quick trip. And um, I actually got like a mini flat tire. My tire light started going off. I noticed the car wasn't riding real well. So we stopped off in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky at this tire store. We pull in. There's all this noise ah, going on. We hear, ding, we walk in and they're like, and I'm like, oh, hey. I need help, you know, I need to get my tire changed. Like clearly I'm persona non grata. I thought this was a business, you know, I thought I was welcome here. Ended up being really, really nice folks. I'm not saying that, but the reality is it was an awkward moment. So you can imagine as this woman walks in, this conversation is going, going, going and silence. What's she doing here? She's not supposed to be here. This is not a dinner for her. And so this room full of people, all attention on her at this point. And she walks towards Jesus. She stops right behind him and she bows low, just like the woman who was healed of her 12 years of bleeding, right? Jesus calls her to the center. What does she do? She bows low to him, tells him everything that happened, just like Mary, who when she ran out to meet Jesus at the, t- at the gate of the city, when he called for her, she falls at his feet and just says, my brother is dead. If you would have been here, it wouldn't have happened. And just like Jairus, when he was like, hey, can you come hear my daughter, heal my daughter? He falls to the ground in submission, in worship. And at this point, she does the same thing. In submission and in worship, she begins to wash his feet and anoint him. And the room has to be wondering, what on earth is going on? There's a prostitute at our swanky dinner at the Pharisee's house. Like, this does not make sense. This is how I know the Bible's true, because you couldn't write it better than this. And so, verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Here comes that religion that Simon holds on to so dearly. Here it comes. Doesn't he know who this is? 
Isn't he concerned with what others are going to think about the fact that she's touching him? That she's near to him? That she's in his personal space? What is everyone else going to think? You see, if she would have come to me, I would have said, woman, stand by thyself. Get away from me. You are a sinner and I am perfect. I'm holier than thou. That's how Simon would have interpreted what was happening. Simon does not get it. But the reason Simon doesn't get it is because he's interpreting what's happening in that scene through his own perspective, through his own worldview. So what he sees is something that just seems crazy, wild, inappropriate, and wrong. What Jesus sees, you're going to find out in a second, is radically different to what Simon sees. And the truth is, that's why we talk about perspective here all the time. Because we have to get our eyes fixed on God and allow him to view the way we see the world and the situations that we're involved in. For Simon, like I said, what's happening is unthinkable. He couldn't believe what's going on in this room. It's disgraceful. But the reason he sees it that way is because he doesn't understand the heart of God. He has rules. But Jesus offers relationship. He has laws, but Jesus offers love through fulfilling the law. He has condemnation, but Jesus has grace. And Simon clearly doesn't realize the incredible magnitude of Jesus' power. Because he utters under his breath, not loud enough for anybody to hear, maybe just in his heart and in his mind, he says, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't let what's happening to him happen. But Jesus knows his thoughts. Jesus' power on display here in a second. He knows his thoughts. He knows what's going through Simon's heart and mind. And in the greatest sneak attack of all time, he says to him in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And I imagine at this point, Simon's gearing up for Jesus to say something that's actually going to discredit Jesus' ministry. Remember where his perspective is. What's happening right now is immoral. What's happening right now is wrong. What's happening right now is not appropriate. Any teacher, any prophet, any one of us would have never let that happen. He should know this. This is wrong. And Jesus does what he always does. When things don't make sense, he tells a parable. He tells a story. He unpacks it in a way that they're not expecting. And Jesus says this in verse 41. He says, hey, Simon, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, yeah, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. Now let's stop there for a second. Notice the body language that just happened. It says turning towards the woman, he's still talking to Simon. His eyes are on the woman. He's communicating a dual message here, just so everyone's aware. This conversation between Jesus and Simon just brought the woman into the equation. And Jesus turns his eyes on her, but directs his voice and his message at him. And this is what he says to him. He says, do you see this woman? Hey, Simon, I know you think you're perfect, but do you see her? This woman right here who's standing in front of her, don't act like you can ignore her. Do you see her? You see, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Hey, Simon, strike one. Strike one, Simon. You see, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came, on, came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Hey, Simon, strike two. Look at her, Simon. 
The girl that you called an outcast, check out what she's doing for me. Verse 46, she did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Strike three, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And I imagine it's starting to click in Simon's head where Jesus is going at this point. Then those who were with him at the table began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there's a lot going on here. So let's break it down one more time so we can catch it all. Jesus is invited to dinner by a Pharisee. Like I said, it's likely a political move or some, um, some historians actually even believe is potentially an entertainment move for Simon's family. Like, Jesus can do miracles. Let's see what he'll do at dinner. Like, that's the equivalent of us. Like, you go on a cruise and, like, they bring out the volcano thing and they light it. And everyone cheers. And, like, I don't even know if the volcano thing tastes good, but that was sure cool. Right? Or you go to Hibachi and half the deal is just watching the guy flip your stuff really high in the air and do all of the tricks. Right? Like, that, that was part of the reason, potentially, why Jesus is there. It's either a political move, i got to raise my clout, or this will be good entertainment for my family. That is so odd to me that you would invite somebody over with that being your perspective in your mind. But how do we know that? Because when Jesus comes in, he, Simon does not offer Jesus water to wash his feet with. He doesn't greet him with the customary kiss. And then he doesn't anoint his head with oil. He doesn't do any of the basic things that you would do for a guest in your home in that day and age. If you're struggling to understand it, let me break it down like this. If I invited you over to my house and I said, hey, come to my, my house tonight for dinner at six. And you're like, okay, I'll be there. And then um, I have the door kind of propped open and you get in and you're walking up my walkman. I kind of motion to you and then I disappear. Like, Where'd he go? You still have your coat on. You're trying to figure out what to do with it. You just kind of stick it in an awkward spot in our home. And, and then you start to have to like follow the smell. To, to find out where I'm at. Now, listen, our house is pretty tiny, so all you have to do is like literally go around the corner and then like, there we are. But, but just play with it for a second, right? Imagine I disappeared to a different part of the house. You literally had to find out where I went. And then as dinner went on, we sit down and we eat and I don't even really acknowledge you. I don't talk to you. I don't bring you into the conversation. I don't ask you how you are. You're sitting around people you may not know that well and I don't try to make this situation any less awkward for you. It becomes pretty apparent I don't actually want you there, even though I invited you there. You'd sit there and you'd be like, I don't know that I feel welcomed. I don't know that I feel honored. I don't know that I feel wanted. I don't, I don't know that I matter, right? It would be a hard thing for us to fathom doing. But like I said, likely Simon is treating Jesus this way because he's using him. And he wants to ensure that who else is present at this dinner understands that, hey, I invited Jesus here, but... I don't actually submit to Jesus. Just so you're aware, I don't really respect him. He might be eating in my home, but you guys get why I brought him here now, right? Because everybody on the outside of the house will have seen him walk in and seen him walk out, and that's going to help me out. You get it now, right? So Jesus isn't welcome in Simon's life. Now let's look at the response of the woman. She's a sinner, Luke tells us. Many public sins. That's why her identity is wrapped up as a sinner. That's how Luke writes about her. She enters the room, and just like Jesus, she's not welcome there either. 
she stops behind Jesus and falls to the ground, a posture of worship and submission, and she proceeds to do everything for him that Simon would not do for him, that was unwilling to do for him. She anoints his feet with ointment. She kisses his feet in adoration, and she washes his feet with her tears in her hair. And notice where all of her attention is. All of her attention is on Jesus' feet. Why the feet? Why is that a big deal? To be frank with you, it's because in their culture, in their day and age, they didn't have the nice paved roads that we enjoy now. They didn't have the fancy sewer systems that we get to enjoy. They didn't have the cleanest of roads. So to be really frank, their feet were disgusting. Their feet would have been gross. Walking everywhere they went, if an animal who's pulling a cart has to go to the restroom on the road, it goes to the restroom on the road. If there's dirt and mud and grime and whatever else coming from the day, it's just out there for you to walk through and drudge through. That's why it was like really normal for somebody to be like, hey, here's a bowl of water to wash your feet with. Because we all get it, all of our feet are gross. But he doesn't do that for him. But she pays all of her attention to Jesus' feet. And to wash them yourself would have been given as like a sign of servanthood of genuine servanthood. So this woman washes his feet, not with water, but with her own tears and then dries them with her hair. And Jesus is the savior of the universe, but even his feet weren't perfectly clean. And so she's washing them with her tears. Why is she crying? Why is this woman there crying at Jesus's feet? Most likely it's because she's been hearing Jesus teach on grace and forgiveness and on who he is, extending hope and life to those who have no hope and no life. And she comes to him knowing all of the sins that she's committed, but she's placed her trust in him that he actually is the Savior. And so she falls at his feet, tears running down her face, remorse for her sins and joy for what is to come crying all over his feet, wiping them down with her hair. And as she's weeping, she takes the ointment and anoints his feet because she's placed her trust in him as the Messiah. And now this isn't just a big deal because she's anointing Jesus as an act of kindness and worship and adoration. By pouring out the ointment, she's actually symbolizing that she's leaving her old life behind. By pouring out that specific expensive ointment, She's symbolizing that her old life of sin is gone. She wants to leave it. And she wants the new life that's to come. So she pours it out. It's an act of repentance. Not just remorse for her sin. She doesn't just feel bad about her sin, but she's literally saying, I want to turn my life in a different direction. I want to leave it behind. I want to follow Jesus. So she physically removes her old way of living and turns her gaze upon Jesus to follow him with everything. And the reality is one of the greatest ways to honor God is by giving him the areas or the things in our life that are causing us to sin, causing us to be disobedient, causing us to live contrary to who he is. Notice this, that the ointment she was using would have probably been essential to her occupation as a prostitute. And Jesus is aware of this. He knows what it was used for. But did he say, oh, not that ointment. Get me, get me a different ointment. I need a different, no, other perfume. That one's not, 
I know what you use that for. No. He understands that as she pours this out, what that means. Her heart's attached to it. Her life is attached to it. Her focus is attached to it. Her devotion is attached to it. Her commitment to following him is attached to it. So she pours it out. He's not concerned with what others would be concerned with. He's overwhelmed by her commitment to him. So even under the clear disapproval of a religious leader, she's bold in her worship and adoration of Jesus. And Simon the Pharisee still doesn't get it, right? So Jesus tells him a story, and this story implicates Simon. Let's read the story again. As Jesus says in verse 41, that a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. She gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Hey, Simon, don't argue with me about how sinful she is. Simon, don't try to argue with me on if there is a limit to grace. Don't try to argue with me on how far my forgiveness can go. Hey, Simon, don't even try to bring it up on where you think my power reaches to. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Go in peace. Don't let your heart be troubled anymore. Go in peace. Don't worry about your past mistakes. Don't worry about your shortcomings. You are forgiven. Those words had to ring so loud in her heart and her mind that day. I'm forgiven. Whoa. The weight lifted off of her shoulder. The thing that defined her for so long that she's literally called in scripture a sinner now a saint, an outcast, now a daughter. She walks freely, go in peace, go in peace. And as he forgives the woman, he gives Simon a reality check as he sets the record straight on how forgiveness is granted. So to Simon's dismay, um, it's not because she earned it. <laughs> she isn't forgiven because she was able to go back and right all of her wrongs. It's because she trusted in Jesus. And as a church, our mission is to know God and to make him known in our community. And so that's why we have that first part of our mission statement, to know God, to intimately know God, to have a relationship with God, to fix our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds on him. Not just know about him, but to know him. You see, Simon the Pharisee, he knew scripture. He knew it with the best of them. Simon knew the laws. He knew the rules. He knew things about God. He knew aspects and attributes of God. But when the Savior of the universe is sitting in his home, he doesn't even identify him as a potential prophet. He looks at him, he says, who is this? If he's a prophet, man, no way. He wouldn't let this happen. But while he knew about God, he didn't know God. But this woman, not educated, doesn't know half the scripture that Simon knows. She had this intimate knowledge of who Jesus was. That's why she's there that day. 
she has this understanding that supersedes something you can be trained on, that only comes from being near and close to the heart of God. And that's what led to her response. She overcomes the condemnation and the disapproval that is no doubt in the eyes of the Pharisee and obediently and desperately worships Jesus. How? Why? Because she knew he was the Messiah and her eyes were on him. So in Simon's heart, his reputation mattered. His ego mattered. His pride mattered. So he treats Jesus disrespectfully, doesn't honor him as one would a guest. In the woman's heart, only Jesus matters. So she boldly takes her most valuable possession, gives it to him because by pouring out the ointment, she's symbolizing that she is removing herself from her life of sin. And by pouring it out, she's stating that nothing but Jesus matters. By pouring it out, she's making room for God to fill her. By pouring it out, she's drawing a line in the sand between what was a life of sin and what is to come, a life with Jesus. My question for you today is what's your alabaster jar? What's the ointment that you need to pour out? Is it the control over your future? Is it the fear that you have about how things are going so much so that you won't fix your eyes on Jesus, but you fix your eyes on everything else. And so you work harder and try more to control better so that maybe just maybe you can get ahead in this life and make something happen that wasn't on your radar. Maybe it's you put your place and your trust in your finances and God's like, hey, I actually want you to become more generous. And you're like, I can't give away right now. That's not what I can do. I got to save. I got to work. I got to save. I got to work. Maybe for you, it's an environment you find yourself in. That's not helping you follow Jesus. Maybe you've got some friends there and some relationships there, but they're not helping you fix your eyes on Jesus. If anything, they're helping you take your eyes off of him. They're crowding your viewpoint. You're having a hard time finding where to put your eyes because you're submitting to your environment and you're not letting go of what was so that you can step into what is to come. Maybe the same thing with your habits. You've got some bad habits that you know. I need to give these to God. I need to turn this over. This is not what I need to be doing with my time. Not what I need to be doing with my life. And as this world gets more and more crazy, maybe rather than putting your trust into God, you've put your trust into media, into news, social media, whatever the case may be, to try to set you at ease. And all it does is create more anxiety in your life. And Jesus is just saying, just pour it out. Just get rid of it. I know you hold it dearly, and I know it's marked a good section of your life. But pour it out. What in your life needs to be removed so that you can fix your eyes on Jesus in a clearer way? What's in the way of following Jesus with all your heart? Listen, I believe this. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter any of the mistakes you've made, whether you've been following Jesus for 30 years for 30 minutes. I believe we've all got an alabaster jar. Every single one of us. We've got something in our life that we can pour out instead of utilizing it to fuel ourselves, to fuel our sin, to fuel disobedience. We can utilize it to worship God, to turn it over to him, to honor God. And as we pour it out, it is. It's going to honor him and help us follow him more freely. And here's the beauty of the grace of God. We touched on it earlier, but he already knows what it is. He already knows what you've used this jar for. 
He understands. He's not blind to it. But when you give it to him, he accepts it. And he trusts it. And he wants it as a gracious gift. Because along with it comes your heart. Comes your trust. And the reality is, that's the only thing God wants. And the reality is, that's the only thing you can offer. Your heart, your adoration, your devotion. So imagine with me for a second the impact this interaction with God would have had on this woman. And then the interaction that she had with Jesus had on the room and then later the community. They're all sitting there going, what on earth is happening? What is she doing? This is crazy. Then they watch the interaction she has with Jesus and Simon and they leave and they go, whoa, who is this that even forgives sins? She walks freely as Jesus forgives her sins and the whole room ponders who he might be. So now imagine with me this. Imagine with me what it would look like if there's a whole group of people so devoted to Jesus that they pour out their lives for him in a way that nothing else matters. What could that do for a community? What could that do for a group of people who desperately need Jesus in a city where 80% of the people don't know God? don't have the hope, don't have the life, they see a group of people saying it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna hold on to anything dearly. I'm gonna give it all to Jesus, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, placing their trust in God. I believe that it could be a pretty powerful example of who God is, and I believe that it can happen here. Why not here? Why not in our church? Why not with us that we fix our eyes on Jesus and we pour out? So let's be a people who daily, in an effort to know God and make him known in our community, we pour out. God, what is it that you want from me? What is it that I need to give you? Help me to pour out.